look at someone like Snoop Dogg, who's probably, you know, who's built an empire, business empire, you know, while he's high all the time. And he probably has, I venture to guess, you know, some of the more functional genetic variants around that. Um, whereas someone like myself, like, you know, I like it for creativity, but I'm going to forget where I put my keys. This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. Did you know that genes are not destiny? You may have a gene for a potential health problem, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to develop that health problem. In fact, your genes determine an awful lot. They may influence how you respond to particular diets and whether the latest fad diet actually works for you or not. And in exchange, your lifestyle and what you eat and how you exercise may affect how your genes express themselves in your health. That's a topic that is absolutely fascinating to me. And I dive into it with David Krantz, who is an epigenetics performance coach. And if you have no idea what that means, you will shortly. We're going to dive into whether there are actually genes for creativity, how following your passion has actually been shown to have positive health benefits at the epigenetic and immune system levels, and how our genes impact how we respond to things like cannabis and psychedelic drugs. And finally, we explore the hot topic of microdosing, i.e. taking tiny daily amounts of psychedelic mushrooms. Hi, David. Welcome to the Ideas Lab podcast. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, getting to chat with you today. Yeah. So you... You are uh, involved in a lot of interesting things. How do you describe yourself when somebody asks you a dinner party question? So what do you do? (laughs) Uh, It depends who I'm talking to, which thing I'll say first. But I describe myself as an epigenetic coach, meaning I help people with their health and really work from a personal perspective in terms of helping people understand their genetics and how that goes into creating optimal health and genetic expression. And on the other side of things, I'm also a musician and an electronic music producer. And that's kind of my background and where I came from initially before I got into more of the health world. Oh, right. Well, I'm a big electronic music fan, so uh, it, we could we could geek out about synthesizers, but I don't know how. Oh, I'm sure we could. <laughs> relevant that I actually used to uh, actually used to work at Moog Music as well, building synthesizers for them for a bit. Well, that's pretty cool if you built Moogs. I, I'm um, I'm currently lusting after an OP1 uh, from Teenage Engineering, mm-hmm. a Swedish company, but I'm resisting buying things I might not actually have any time to use. Um, When you mentioned you're an epigenetic coach, we need to explain some terms here. What does epigenetic mean specifically? Absolutely. So epigenetic means directly control over genes. And this is a system in the body that has really only been understood and discovered maybe in in the past 20 to 30 years. And, you know, when we first discovered DNA back really in the 50s, we understood the structure for the first time. Um, We didn't really understand that there was ways to shift and change how that DNA expressed over time. And what I mean by that is 
the central dog of biology uh, is genes code for proteins, which code for traits, meaning your hair color, your eye color, your skin color, uh, all of the different features of your metabolism are to some degree coded in your genes. But that's not the entire picture. Your body is actually really dynamic and responsive to different signals that you get from the environment. So when you exercise, you know, people know exercise is one of the best things you can do on a regular basis. Um, but what is actually the mechanism that's causing that to create all these positive changes in the body? Uh, it's actually the way that ex epigenetics shifts the way those genes express. And so on all of your genes, you kind of have these little markers that can tell um, your body to make more of this protein or make less of it or make a different type of it. And it's extremely complex and dynamic and just allows us to be super adaptive to whatever environment we find ourselves in. So what I do as a coach is really leverage that system and look at things from that perspective to say, all right, what information can we give your body that's going to help it to thrive and cause those expressions to happen in a way that's positive because you can go in, in either direction. Uh, you know, poor health is correlated with poorer, more negative epigenetic expression and, and good health is correlated with positive epigenetic expression. So, yeah. um, you know, it's really leveraging that system. Which is really interesting because like you say, when we first started understanding about, uh, genes and a lot of us, our learning possibly stopped at that point. And we thought, well, you know, if you've got a gene for something, uh, something bad, that something bad is going to happen to you. But what we're actually saying, it's not that simple because the whether that gene actually ends up being switched on, as it were, or having an effect, uh, is influenced by how you live and the other, and presumably what you eat and whether you exercise and all sorts of other things. Have you got an example of a gene that switched on or switched off, which we could understand easily? Yeah, absolutely. So um, probably the most, one of the most well-researched ones is this gene called APOE, A-P-O-E. And they found that certain variants of this gene are correlated with higher incidence of cardiovascular disease and dementia and a lot of things that you really don't want. But what they've really discovered after looking deeper into that is that those people with those variants, the main way that that shows up is when people eat a diet that's high in saturated fat and don't exercise and people are more prone to inflammation when they have that certain variant but it's really only when they're doing certain environmental things when they're you know if you exercise and you eat a diet that's lower in saturated fat when you have that certain variant the risk kind of just normalizes and it's kind of the same as someone with a you know kind of the the non-risk version of it and yeah. so that that gene in, 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 the, in the presence of high saturated fat, low exercise gets switched on in a way that you don't want it and kind of vice versa when you can you know, manage those lifestyle factors. That's really interesting. And I think they, isn't that what they determined with salt as well? Because the advice currently is just go easy on the salt because it can cause high blood pressure. But I, what I heard is actually for some people it doesn't matter and for some people it does because of uh, a genetic factor. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I look at with my clients. And I'll see some people, there's um, there's five different genetic variants I look at with that. And, you know, one of the important things to know is um, it's only so useful when you look at one thing at a time. But when you stack, say, multiple things that are going to influence that 
kind of outcome together, you can get a bigger picture. So sometimes I'll see people that have all five of the variants that code for more sodium sensitivity. And sometimes I'll see people that have all five of those variants that code for almost no correlation between blood pressure and sodium. And then a lot of people are kind of in the middle, but you really do have this spectrum and this range of how sodium is going to impact blood pressure depending on you know how you're wired. wired. Which is great because if you find you don't have the sensitivity for it, you can eat as much salt as you want, presumably. <laughs> or you don't have any, if you don't right, have any right. of the five factors, I guess, you can eat as much salt as you want. Right. And sometimes I'll actually see people that have issues with low blood pressure and they actually have some of the variants that are related to, you know, less correlation. And so for them, they actually need to be having a higher sodium intake to kind of regulate their blood pressure in the same way. And you also said that, I mean, different diets affect different people for these reasons. And, um, and there are people in the medical world who still insist that it is simply calories in and calories out. And you'll lose weight if you consume fewer calories than you expend and you'll gain weight if you consume more calories than you expend. Is that not the case? That is certainly the case, but it's also not the entire picture because weight gain and weight loss is 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 complex and you know something like inflammation can cause you to hold on to more fat and, and create more fat and certain diets for certain people are more inflammatory than others um you know going back to what i was saying like just with that one gene and, and saturated fat um that might create inflammation for someone or it might actually be really helpful with someone going on a keto diet and, you know, keto's gotten really popular and, uh, you know, it's a very high fat diet. And, you know, some people are very well suited to it, maybe 10, 20 percent of the population. Um, but it's it's one of those things where you don't want to fit yourself into this box just because you heard that your friend or your neighbor lost weight on this thing. Um, and you really see, I mean, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of different factors and certainly we're not at a point where we know all of them or even close to all of them, but we are at a point where we have a pretty good understanding that these things really do impact people on an individual basis. And, you know, calories and calories in and calories in and calories out is going to be, you know, shifted depending on what type of calorie, where you're getting those calories from. So, you know, some people are going to, lose weight better on a low carb approach, but there's also a gene that's been identified where people have, uh, tend to lose weight better if they eat over 150 grams of complex carbs per day. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's not so simple and, uh, it really depends on how you're wired and, and what your metabolism is likely to, how it's going to, you know, respond to different types of calories and, and types of, of inputs there. And that's so interesting, you know, because some people will claim they have a slow metabolism, some people seem to have a problem losing weight more than others. Is there truth in that? Or are those of us like me who are overweight, are we just lazy? I, I mean, I'd confirm that the case is lazy in my case, but you know, for, for, for people who are severely overweight, um, is it true that something could be going on in your metabolism uh, that's contributing to that, that's making it much more difficult for you to lose weight than somebody else? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it, I don't want to make it seem like everything that's going on is genetic. A lot of it is the epigenetics, right, where uh, it, it's the gene and environment interaction. So it may be that someone who's, you know, very overweight and has trouble losing weight is just not giving their body the right signals. 
And if they were able to potentially align the right signals for their body, um, that might be a lot easier to speed up their metabolism and what actually kind of, get to. Okay. I got to ask what kind of signals, what do you mean by signal? Sure. Sure. So uh, when I say that I'm talking about all of, of life, all of lifestyle, right? Like nutrition is a piece, exercise is a piece. Uh, but I'm talking about stress and attitude and, and mindset and the light that you're exposed to throughout the day. Like, you know, we're in a weird kind of point in time where all of a sudden in the last hundred years, we're exposing ourselves to artificial light for the first time, uh, in, in human history. Uh, and so that's a factor I, I, I strongly believe, uh, when you look at the research and, and some of the factors around the way that our bodies actually respond to light. Um, you know, when you look at, toxins from the environment, uh, you look at, uh, all, all, all of those different, those features, um, and see how those things are interacting. Like, you know, someone could be eating the diet that is appropriate for them, but if they're under so much stress that they're just, their nervous system is constantly, you know, in fight or flight, that changes the entire dynamic of how they might hold on to fat as well. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? So if you're in a chronically stress state is going to affect your your blood sugar and your insulin response isn't it and uh mm-hmm. and and make you crave different foods i would imagine absolutely yeah that that's a factor and uh, you know, the way that you perceive hunger and the way that you feel full is is tied into all these things as well so um you know one of the things I'll work on my clients with often is, you know, how can we shift the way that those signals in the body, hormones and neurotransmitters are, are being uh, perceived by the brain and, and how, are, how is that translated into, you know, cravings and, um, you know, being able to manage the, what you're eating in a way where, where you're aligning with what you want to be doing. Yeah. Which, you know, I think I think kind of really <clears throat> ties us nicely into um, the creative side of things. And, you know, maybe what your listeners might be more interested in is, um, you know, around discipline and around just sitting down and doing the thing. And yeah. I find that ties in so uh, so neatly into uh, lifestyle and exercise and, and routines and things like that, uh, at least for me personally, where, you know, when I've been able to um, kind of change my habits through nutrition and all that, uh, doing, sitting down and doing the work that I've been wanting to do kind of got easier just because I had more, you know, brain power and more focus and, and a little bit more of a, of a template to work from. Like my entire day is, is just, you know, one piece, one, one way of thinking about it rather than trying to, um, you know, segment things so much. It's what's the phrase? Like the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And so what you're saying is, yeah, I mean, I remember I referenced this the, the other day with Angela Saini, who was talking about genetics and race. And, um, we talked about, I mentioned, uh, Jamie Oliver over here. I don't know if you know him. I know he did some work in the States. He was looking at school lunches and the food that's served to children. And, <clears throat> they, he found that when he went into schools, they were being fed meals that were so cheap. They really were the worst possible junk food. And he showed the staff how to make healthy, fresh food for actually about the same price. Um, and the effect of doing that on the children was remarkable. So some of them had uh, chronic medical conditions go away, uh, you know, skin conditions and so on. But also kids who were considered troublesome or who had been diagnosed with ADD, um, 
found that that actually went away and they could concentrate just because they were getting one meal a day that was much better. So it's, it's, we should never underestimate what our diet is doing to us in terms of the ability to sit down and do the work. Absolutely. I, I, I've, I'm familiar with those studies as well. And um, I think they saw, I mean, it was some crazy number in terms of average test score, 20, 30%, something like that changed. And I'm not sure if this was the same study uh, or same incidents or not, but there is another situation or maybe the same one um, where they changed the food in a school and they saw the test scores go up and they saw all these behavioral problems go away. And then they switched providers uh, for food and thought they were getting something comparable. And it, they, they actually later on found out they weren't. But a lot of those behavioral problems came back for a couple months before they realized something was going on. And so it was actually the kids that became the canary in the coal mine to say, hey, we, we know they respond well to this you know, clean, whole food kind of a, a diet, even just for a meal a day, um, what's going on? And so they kind of traced that back and realized that the food that they were sourcing from this other company actually was not on par with what they thought it was. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. And to talk about creativity, <clears throat> I think you've said that it, it sounds like, are there genes for, cre- for creativity or that supports creativity? There are certain variants that have been identified uh, that are related to creativity. Uh, it certainly isn't, you know, it means that if you don't have those variants, you're not creative. But there's, there's certain features, um, things like flexible thinking and uh, openness that have certain genetic um, influences, I, I'll say. Um, it, they're more influences than hard you know, coded kind of things. Um, but there, there also are some really interesting studies on very musical families, uh, that, you know, there's certain tightly conserved genes that seem to be passed on in extremely musically creative people. Um, you know, when you see someone whose, whose parents were musicians and their parents were musicians, um, they've identified some genes associated with that. Um, and there's also a cool study that looked at um, creative dancing, the capacity to like dance creatively to music. Uh, also found there were some genetic components with that. Um, and you know, it's one of those things where uh, I, I think it's more just cool information than really useful. It's kind of nice to know, um, but it, it does describe, um, I don't know, inherent differences in the way that people see the world and interface with it and are able to make connections between things uh, that, you know, there are some kind of hardwired things and it makes a lot of sense for me as, as someone who's always kind of seen the, you know, seen the world and, and thought, well, how can, how can I come up with something that's different than what's here? You know, what, wouldn't it be cool if it was like that? Um, and so I, I guess it, you know, there, there's some just innate kind of drives to do that for some people. Yeah. I wonder when I was looking at the ocean test, the, um, the big five psychology test, it mm-hmm. does seem that I haven't looked it up, but I imagine some of those traits of, of openness, as you mentioned, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism will have a genetic component. And then it'll be influenced as well on top of that on by upbringing and, and so on. Uh, but I, I'm, I think introversion in particular and extroversion seems like something that's, um, that's built in fairly early on. It probably comes from genes, isn't it? 
You know, I'm not super familiar with the the genetic research on introversion, extroversion, but I, I would imagine there's a strong component there as well. I do know that the openness and agreeable categories, I've seen some some genetic correlations with that for sure. Yeah, interesting. And um, you said something about um, following your passion has been shown to have big benefits on on your whole health, uh, on um, on your genes even. Yes. So there were a couple studies that were done at UCLA a couple of years ago that were looking at people and codifying their genetic expression or their epigenetic marks on their genes. And what they were doing is they were surveying them to figure out how do these people generate happiness in life? And they kind of group these people into what they considered hedonic happiness and eudaimonic happiness. And so the hedonic group were people that were getting their kind of main drive for happiness from, you know, more hedonic means like going out and partying, just generally pleasurable things, um, but not a lot of meaning. And the people in the eudaimonic group, um, they were describing as, you know, people that were more generating happiness from uh, meaning in life, purpose, following their passion and that type of thing. And they actually found that the people in the eudaimonic purpose-driven group had a better immune expression uh, profile. And so, you know, it, it's one of those interesting things where um, the interface between the mind and the body is so complex and just so fascinating, but it, it and who knows exactly how that's that's showing up. But the fact that they are able to, to quantify that, I think really speaks volumes um, for really following what it is that you want to be doing in life. And, you know, just beyond, I, I mean, for the sake of doing it first, but just knowing that there's also probably some health benefits uh, down the line as well. And I, I think it just makes sense if you're, you know, happy with what you're doing with your time. Uh, I think that's going to translate into lower stress and just overall more resiliency around, you know, daily life. And you, probably not so much if you're kind of stuck in a dead end job and you're going out on the weekends and that's all you can, that's all you're doing to, you know, feel, feel something in life, you know? Yeah. No. So actually daring to do something meaningful rather than also sitting down having a cake might uh, have better benefits for you overall. And when you're working with clients, what do you, when you say you're an epigenetic performance coach, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it means I'm really taking into account that epigenetic perspective when I'm you know recommending certain nutritional strategies or looking at exercise or looking at ways to improve stress response. And, you know, a lot of what I do crosses over with someone who might not consider themselves an epigenetic coach, but I'm really trying to take that into perspective. And I think also what separates what I do is the basis for all my work is based on analyzing someone's genes and getting a feel for, okay, how are you going to respond epigenetically to this versus that, you know, are you someone that's going to do better on a high protein approach or a low carb approach, uh, and look at the genes just to kind of cut out some of the, the experimentation that, 
you know, you can be subject to for years before you kind of land on the right thing. And it just, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a shortcut to just getting to the, you know, the useful protocol and strategy. I, I kind of refer to it actually as, um, uh, getting rid of supplement aisle syndrome. Like when you're standing in front of the supplement aisle and going, huh, everything looks like it's supposed to be healthy for me. I don't even know what, I'm just overwhelmed. I, I don't know what to do. It, it, it gives you a little bit more of a, of, of clarity on, on where you might start and yeah. in terms of the way your body's wired, where you might want to try and, and shift th- some things, um, first, you know? And so presumably this whole process starts off with somebody having a blood test and sending off for analysis. Is that what happens? Uh, actually it's a cheek swab test. Oh, so right. it's, uh, it's not even a, <laughs> yep, it's easier. And, uh, I, I will also incorporate some blood work, um, you know, look at some blood markers to largely track some things over time if we want to do that. But yeah, the basis of it is a cheek swab test. Yeah, no, that's good. It's fascinating. So, and you've also got into and got interested in response to cannabis because there's a lot of interest with people, um, with um cbd oil which i've experimented with i bought some in america get um everything's getting legalized everywhere and had a go with using it to sleep better when i came home with jet lag it seemed to help with that and uh, mm-hmm. i've always been very wary about um uh, instinctually i've avoided taking anything really psychoactive i've smoked cannabis um don't do that really much anymore but uh did a bit when I was younger and I'm always wary about people diving into drugs and, um, trying them out, particularly anything in the, in the sort of psychoactive world of, of acid and that kind of family. Because if you actually have, my understanding is if we have the genes for schizophrenia or there's a history of that, uh, in your family, you need to be really wary. In fact, even, uh, cannabis, which now is, far stronger than when I was a lad. It was like uh, fairly harmless back then. It's now been, you know, cultivated to be about 10 times stronger. Can can set off some quite a powerful effects on everybody. And just because everyone's making jokes about it and uh, most people are actually fine doesn't mean when it's not risky for those people who, you know, have siblings and, and parents with major uh, mental health issues. So, I mean, um, so I've, I've always been a little bit kind of cautious around that and kind of wanted to warn people uh, before they dive into taking drugs, but they, they do need to be a little bit careful with it. Um, what's your thinking on that? You know, I actually agree 100%. And this is coming from someone who has consumed cannabis most of my life, on, you know, less now than I did when I was younger, uh, much less now, actually. But uh, I've always been attracted to cannabis. It was one of those things where when I smelled it for the first time when I was like 13 or so, it like flipped something on my brain where I was like, oh, wow, I, I got to know what this is. And um, looking at the research and understanding it a little bit more, there are certain people that do have genetic liability for you know psychosis and, and uh, things like schizophrenia. And I, I think that um, for a small percentage of the population, you're, you're totally right that it really can, um, potentially exacerbate things. And there's still not, you know, total agreeance on causation versus correlation with that. Um, but there are some really good studies that have identified certain genes where people that, 
Um, and these were studies that were done uh, looking at people with first episode psychosis. So, um, you know, when people came in for the first time, there, there, this the study that I'm thinking of, they did about 400 people um, that had first episode psychosis and looked at their genes and found that there were two different variants that the people with um, psychosis that had smoked cannabis, having those variants uh, and the more uh, it was like a perfect dose response curve where the more of those variants they have, uh, they could have between either zero or four. Um, the the more that they had, the higher likelihood that, that they would have had first episode psychosis. Uh, whereas people with those variants that had never smoked cannabis actually was slightly protective in the opposite way. Uh, right. So, you know, and this is, I, I don't, I don't want to even throw out a number in terms of, you know, how many people this is relevant for probably less than a single percent, but knowing that there is that group of people out there, I think it's very important to be aware of and, and talk about. And, you know, as someone who's generally pro cannabis, because it's, uh, you know, I've, I get benefits from it personally, um, not so much for, for memory and concentration and that kind of thing, but other, other things, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think very worth considering and, you know, I, I'm, that's, part of what I'm trying to bring to the table here is just helping people understand this, that it's not a political thing. It's not a, right. You know, this stuff just gets so politicized and, and heated. Um, but it's a scientific thing, you know, it's there and we should be, you know, as conscientious, um, you know, people from my perspective as a, as a conscientious, uh, proponent of, of legalizing drugs in general, um, because I see there's benefits and, you know, there tend to be, um, you know, better, lower rates of overdose, lower rates of addiction when you can treat it like a, a medical scientific issue rather than this thing that, um, you know, you, you can't talk about and there's stigma around, um, what within that, it, I think it's really important to know that there are people that have risk susceptibilities and um yeah the genetics are a really interesting factor and you know i've kind of been on this path i guess the last couple of years since um i realized that there was all this research on cannabis and genes that um just hadn't hasn't really made it into the mainstream yet and so there's actually um a lot of different things you can look at that you know, predispose people to different responses to cannabis, including more kind of benign things like, are you going to be someone who has uh, more or less uh, problems with short-term memory, you know, after smoking? Like there's certain variants that, um, that you know, actually pretty extreme in that response where they've gotten people high in, in a laboratory thing and looked at how they how they do on a short-term memory test, the kind of thing where you have to keep, a, a, you know, a number or two in your head and you get, you keep adding numbers and have to remember them. And, um, they call it the end back test. And there's certain, uh, there's a variant called COMT that they found that, um, with people with one variant, they have about a 40% reduction in, in short term working memory, uh, with acute cannabis use. Hmm. But the other variant it's, it's, it's negligible. It's maybe like, hmm. you know, five, 10%. Uh, and so you have these people that are totally stratified, 
to one degree or the other. Um, and that, and again, it's not the only gene that, that can impact that, you know, there's four or five others that they know also contribute to short-term memory, uh, in the cannabinoid receptor genes and some other things there. Um, but what I've been doing actually is I've, I've been experimenting with creating a test, uh, where I can look at all of those variants for people. And similarly to what we were saying with the sodium before, sometimes I'll see people that have all of the risk variants for short-term memory, and they kind of know that it's really not a functional thing for them. Um, and then every once in a while, I'll see someone who has, you know, the full-on protective, cogn- cognitively protective variants. And so you get this really wide stratified response in terms of, um, you know, how functional someone can be if they're using cannabis. Like you look at someone like Snoop Dogg, who's probably, you know, who's built an empire, business empire, you know, while he's high all the time. And he probably has, I venture to guess, you know, some of the more functional genetic variants around that. Um, Whereas someone like myself, like, you know, I like it for creativity, but I'm going to forget where I put my keys. (laughs) So... (laughs) Yeah. And it, and for me, it never really, I think it induced anxiety in me. So I, which is why I never mm. really took a great deal of it. And, um, uh, and I, I'm, I've always been thankful that I don't find alcohol, uh, reduces my anxiety because if it did, uh, I think I'd be a really hardcore alcoholic because the, I've, I've experienced so much anxiety in my life. I'm a reasonably anxious person anyway. Um, but certainly it's been very severe at times. And so I've always had that sense that, um, that that was probably just the luck of the draw, uh, that I can drink and it, it, I do get pleasant effects from drinking alcohol. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop me worrying. (laughs) So, which is, I'm very grateful for. Uh, and I, and I think increasingly we need to be aware of these things. We need to be aware that just because all your mates like taking dope or drinking or whatever, if you notice you're having a very different effect and it's it's not pleasant and it feels like it's not working for you, I think it's really, you know, in absence of getting an actual swab test and, and running your DNA uh, through a lab, um, it's good, important to listen to that kind of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think listening to your body is, is the primary thing. Um, and then, you know, doing further testing, if you're interested in experimenting with something like that, and maybe you haven't before, I, I think is worthwhile. Um, there actually are also some genetic variants they've found that are associated with cannabis uh, uh, and paranoia and that type of thing. So, you know, some people are just more genetically wired to experience that yeah. um, versus other people that have more of a pleasant subjective response. And You've looked into microdosing uh, a little bit. Do you want to explain what that is for people who aren't familiar with it? Oh, sure. Uh, so microdosing is taking really any psychoactive substance in sub-threshold doses where you're not fully getting the psychoactive effects, but you're kind of keeping it below the the dosage level um, where that would really be apparent. But uh, and, and this is more commonly um, used with psilocybin or LSD. Uh, and so it's, you know, with LSD, it's maybe taking about a tenth of a dose. Uh, with psilocybin, it's maybe taking about 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 of a gram, whereas, you know, 1.5 grams is about a, a, a minimum threshold dose. And uh, people tend to report it's helpful for focus or creativity. And, um, 
you know, people respond differently to it. And for, you know, it's it's kind of the wild, wild west right now with it. You know, people are experimenting with it and um, some people have good results. I, I like it personally. I find it's very helpful if I'm going to sit down and, and do some work all day or if uh, I'm, I'm going to have uh, – you know, interesting conversation with someone. Sometimes it just opens things up and puts you, puts me at least at a little bit more in the moment. And are you using uh, psilocybin or LSD? Uh, I generally prefer psilocybin. Uh, I've always just been a little bit more, I don't know, comfortable with it. Um, if people don't I, know, this is uh, magic mushrooms, by the way. So if anyone knows magic mushrooms and hasn't uh, wasted their youth like some of my friends did, uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with it, then um, what you do is you take some of it and you can pick it out of the ground in the fields in England and uh, and cook them up normally. So you'd actually be boiling mushrooms and then drinking a liquid. That's how my uh, friends used to take it. And it will give you a mm-hmm. trip similar to LSD, but perhaps a bit softer. Is that, I mean, if you take it in a large enough dose, I appreciate you're taking it in a, a dose that, that doesn't give you that kind of effect. But if you take it in a large enough dose, it's kind of similar to LSD, but a bit softer. Is that a fair description? Uh, it can be softer. It certainly can be just as intense in the right dose and, and setting. And um, I, I'm personally very interested in psychedelics and the therapeutic application, especially. I'm I'm actually right now part part time in school, getting a therapy degree, um, so that I can you know potentially be involved with that in a in a therapeutic context. Um, because the research that's coming out right now, um, treating all kinds of things from PTSD to alcohol addiction to other things is, is incredibly strong. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where, uh, regardless, again, kind of what, regardless of what you think about it on a personal or political level, uh, uh, science is, is just speaks for itself. So, uh, I think there's tremendous utility, uh, but again, people should be very cautious about, you know, doing this without the proper understanding of what you're doing and, you know, without someone who, who might be able to, you know, be with you and help you. And, um, you know, I, I mean, this is coming from someone who's been experimenting <laughs> probably in ways that if I could go back, I would do it differently, you know, <laughs> in, in various contexts. But, um, you know, there, there are, there are certainly risks, but I think that a lot of the, um, risks, were ha- around psychedelics, especially psilocybin, have been kind of exaggerated in certain ways. But then again, yeah, if you do have risk of schizophrenia or things like that, you know, any type of uh, psychotic disorder, bipolar as well, um, you do need to be very careful and 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 you know make sure that um, you're not doing something that's going to exacerbate or, or put you at risk there. Yeah. I've got at least two friends who took a fair bit of, uh, uh, acid and psilocybin and were both diagnosed with something in the area of, of schizophrenia and psychosis. Now, as you say, that could be correlation, not causation. Um, because I've got another two friends who've been diagnosed who never took any of that stuff. Um, and that's not even a decent sample size, obviously. But but um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's which is why I chose to just never take anything like that. But the microdosing angle, I think, is quite interesting. And um, and uh, uh, you might have heard that podcast idea, which is one of the first one from the Ideas Lab uh, with Jerry Hyde, where he microdoses and he says it it makes him a lot more um, creative. 
So I think what's interesting about all this stuff is what we're, what we're realizing is just how different our bodies are. And when we think that our bodies respond differently to different things, we're not imagining it. And it seemed in the medical world, unfortunately, has a model that really that everybody's body is a black box and should respond in the same way. And um, uh, I know I'm on at least one drug uh, from my uh, pituitary um, where uh, they found it very problematic to come to a conclusion on because the 50% of people who benefit from it really benefit from it. And then there's 50% for whom it does almost nothing. And it's growth hormone when I'm talking about here. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and for me, uh, my life was pretty terrible for an entire decade uh, before I started taking this stuff. And for other people, it made no difference for them. So we, we had a real fight because we have a, um, you know, we have a national health service here. So, um, you have to get the government to pay for it. If you want the government to pay for it, you have to fight to prove that it's worth it. And that's that fight is still actually going on in some, for some people. Uh, they did eventually agree that if you pass certain psychological tests showing that you felt terrible without it, it's worth it. It's worth going on to it. Um, but I think what I got out of that whole situation is realizing that um, the future of medicine is personalized, isn't it? And and that will be that's a long time coming. And I will be very glad to see the day when it is. We're already seeing the effects of that in personalized cancer treatments, for instance, which are way more successful. But is that a good description to say that the future of medicine is personalized? Absolutely. And I think we're entering a phase where it's available if you seek it out. And, you know, I really like to think about it very similarly to any type of creative pursuit where, you know, great artists aren't made because they're copying someone else. They're, they're great artists or people that have, you know, looked at all of what's out there and taken different techniques and combined them into their own way of doing things. And I think it's very similar with, with health, uh, where, you know, there's so many different things you can try and, and so many ways your body might respond differently. And like you said, when you notice something like that, uh, it, it's it's true. Trust yourself. the The concept of n equals one is is very important, and so n is like the number of people in a study. When you look at studies, like n of twenty means there's twenty people in a study. But w- what I, I encourage my clients to do is take the n of one approach. You're the person in your experiment, and you know that's what matters. And it doesn't matter what someone else is telling you. Your body should be doing. Um, you know. If you know that you're responding a certain way, trust that. But yes, I think the the future of medicine is absolutely personalized, and the future of wellness too. Uh, and I want to make the distinction there that you know I'm not a doctor. I, I'm a I'm a wellness coach, and so I kind of operate outside the medical paradigm a bit. And I really work with people from an optimal wellness perspective, meaning like I'm. I'm not focused on necessarily disease. I'm, I'm focused on creating health. And it's just kind of a different angle. Um, and it, it, there's a lot of things that cross over. But I think that really looking at it from that angle gives us a bit more freedom and a bit more ability to say, hey, you know, I actually um, want to experiment with this thing that I wonder if, you know, maybe my brain will work a little bit better or I'll have better mood or energy. And I, I feel for you in terms of having to fight for, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, for that, you know, medication for yourself, because, uh, there's a lot of people in medical kind of industry that, um, 
either don't want to admit that you know it's imperfect or, or the people that know that it's imperfect there's plenty of people that know that you know we can't predict response for everyone and of course there's going to be people that respond differently um a lot of people that are entrenched in the insurance reimbursement model or the you know government mandated kind of protocols um you know they can't really operate operate outside that paradigm very well because they're so kind of tightly controlled with time and money and, and energy um so that's kind of what i do is i kind of fill in the gap for people to say all right well you know if you want a little bit more personalized support and really want to you know do some experimentation um that's kind of where i come in and and uh and help mm-hmm. well that's great that's been absolutely fascinating david if people want to find out more about everything you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so my website is david-krantz, uh, david-krantz.com. And I've got a couple uh, free webinars up there that people can watch. I've got one on the genetics of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. Uh, I've got another one that's just on epigenetics in general. And uh, I've got some articles, and if anyone is interested in seeing if we'd be a good fit to work together, I also offer free 30-minute consultations, and we can just chat and you know see if your goals align with what I do. Great. Well, it's fantastic. Uh, thanks very much, David. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Appreciate uh, having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast.